Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy. This is real life. I'm your host, Anna Lindbergh-Cedar, and I'm happy to have with us today Vanya Dionisio, the founder of Dance in Power, and she's going to share more with us today about the power of movement, the healing of dance, and more about her personal experience. Vanya, thank you for joining us on the show. Would you share more with our listeners a little bit about your path and how you came to be the founder of Dance in Power? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited uh, to share my story with you and with the listeners. Uh, So how I started. It's such a long story. I have to be creative to just condense, right? So take your time. I'm interested to hear the story. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, So everything started with actually my own childhood experience with dance. I grew up in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I mean, I was born in Brazil and grew up all over, but um, very early, uh, at a very early age, I was introduced to dance by my aunts, you know, family members and my family. I grew up in a family of musicians, so that was like always part of my life. Uh, But it wasn't until um, at 10, I suffered this childhood trauma that dance became like this very interesting part of my life. Um, in Brazil, you know, psychotherapy, it's not really um, accessible to start with. And on top of that, there is a stigma, you know, in, in, in my country where people think about therapies like, oh, that's for crazy people. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I don't think know, Brazil is the only one that has that stigma attached to it, but you knew it you, from your own experience, huh? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and I heard later, like, from, you know, like coming to the US and going to school to become a therapist, I learned that other cultures share similar things. So Mm -hmm. unfortunately, because therapy is so life changing, I'll say. So anyway, back to my childhood. So I didn't have access to therapy. uh, And I also did not have the courage to come forward with what had happened to me. However, um, one person in my school she uh, identified that I was my grades were like dropping and I was like not talking anymore. So she noticed that something was not right. And she approached, she tried to, to help in the way she could, um, but I would not open up. So she uh, suggested that I would st- not start, I would join the, the dance program that our school had. And that was like life changing for me because once I started doing that and I was like able to be more in my body again, you know, and and move and be around other people and it was just so empowering and so liberating. So I felt like myself again. I felt in touch with who I was. And, you know, looking back, I don't know how in depth my feelings and emotions were in regards to everything. I'm mm-hmm. imagine that um, I compartmentalized them so that I could go on, but mm-hmm. I imagine that that's what happened because after that, dance became a huge part of my life, like the, the air I breathe, you know. Mm-hmm. So because so many reasons, right? Like dance is is free, it's accessible, right? I mean, of course, I dreamt of going to become a ballerina, but you know, growing up in the slums of Brazil without food, who'd have money to to mm-hmm. pay for ballet class lessons, mm-hmm. right? But 
I didn't have access to that classical training, but I had access to so many other beautiful uh, rhythms of Brazil and dance that are folkloric, you know, in, in past through generations. So I felt very grateful for that. So fast forward, I grew up with that desire to one day use dance to help uplift others the way that helped me, you know, uplift and cope with everything. But I had no idea how uh, I'll do that. You know, I just had that in my heart. Uh, then time passed, many years passed. I was here, I came to the United States and I was teaching in East Oakland, uh, teaching at Melrose Leadership Academy uh, for the middle school and also teaching at, at this place in this other school that was a charter school on Alcatraz and San Pablo. So I remember one day um, as I was biking from the East Oakland to the San Pablo school, um, I stopped by the light on 52nd and MLK in Oakland. And as I stopped in the red light and I look, that was it, Children's Hospital Oakland. So the moment I saw that, you know, I looked and looked in the window and I started thinking about my son, because I have a son, thinking about how kids might feel so sad and isolated and trapped into that, you know, that environment and that situation I didn't ask for. Mm -hmm. I thought about myself, how things happened to me and I was feeling trapped and isolated and, and suffering, you know, and I felt what helped me at that time, dance. So it was not a question. I was, okay, this is it. This is my life calling. Uh -huh. I need to come to this place, ask them if I can teach, bring dance to the kids there because, you know, the kids are away from their family and friends and everything that's familiar to them and dance can definitely help them feel connected with themselves, with their bodies. Um, Sounds like that was a light, dance. like a lightning bolt moment for you, like a total aha, like you just knew it, it came to you. I did, I did. And and later um, I learned that I saw Oprah. She, actually I saw her in person in, a, in an event that had in San Francisco. And she said, you know, when your life calling rings, you cannot just ignore it because if you ignore it, then it's gonna just knock you in the head like, like a rock. <laughs> and then if you continue to ignore it, it's gonna maybe send a brick. And then if you continue to ignore it, it's just gonna take you down. So you have to answer, you have to follow your life calling. It is important, it's your mission here. And that's the way I felt. I was like, I'm not gonna wait for the, the brick to, to hit my head. <laughs> do it. So yeah, I went to the hospital, uh, parked my bike, I went there and I, ask the people in the front. I had no idea how the hostel system works, or red tape or anything, you know. Uh -huh. so I thought, this is my idea, I wanna do this. And they look at me like I was out of my mind. You know, uh -huh. dance in the hospital with kids with IVs. Mm -hmm. So they they kindly said, well, here's the volunteer services information. That was back in 2005. Um, they said, the volunteer service information, you can take a look, we are always looking for volunteers, but I don't think that's, you know, the idea of dance would be something applicable to this environment. and. And the the has the rest is history because <laughs> I I I went back I felt disappointed but I was like I'm not gonna take a no for an answer they you know like I need to reach out so I reached out four different times once a month trying to talk to different uh, volunteer members uh, service at the office and they all said well honey that's very sweet of you but this is not the place they kept saying that and I was like okay I tried different times because I hoped that other person would answer and they would open the door for me. And mm -hmm. that was not the case. So I decided that they were saying no because they didn't know better. 
because you do better when you know better, right? Mm-hmm. Maya Angelou said that. Mm-hmm. And I believe it. So I got a job in the hospital at emergency registration in order for me to be able to start my program. I got the job on March 13 of 2006. On March 26 of 2006, I had had already a chance to go around the hospital and see who kept the key for programs for kids who were not like not clinical, you know, uh, interventions. And I met this woman, her name is Maggie Greenblatt. She was a child life specialist there for like 30 years. And she saw my excitement and a desire to do this. And she was very skeptical at first, because again, dance is not something that you do in the hospital at that time. But she, I think she noticed that that was, uh, I mean, a very persistent person. So she said that I could, you know, I could try. Plus, I was still teaching for the Oakland Unified School District, and there was a school room in the hospital, so that was the connection, uh, which uh-huh. was very positive. And then she said, oh, you can try, but I can't promise anything, and I also hope that you don't take it personal when the kids don't participate. That was in 2006, and the program has been going strong for almost 15 years. Fine. And, and she said, don't take it personally if the kids don't participate. I'm so curious, what was your experience as soon as the kids had that opportunity in the hospital? What, what, did, you, what, what did you find to be the case? Yeah, so um, I went prepared, you know, because I was used to teaching dance in schools and you know, usually kids are not really into in the beginning. So like I was prepared on that end. And I did a lot of reading beforehand of like how things happen in hospitals. And I also talked to a lot of um, people beforehand, you know, like the child life and how the kids are. So I got there, you know, on my lunch hour. And that was another thing because like the timing of the class was an issue. Like I couldn't teach before my shift at uh, emergency registration. I couldn't teach after because it's too late. So I decided to donate my lunch time to, to teaching. So I remember like it was yesterday, my very first lesson, I clocked out from my lunch. I changed my serious, you know, dark clothes to like very colorful Brazilian <laughs> clothes with the boom box at that time, because nowadays everybody has like this little clips, uh, Bluetooth thing, it was uh-huh. a boom box. And I went upstairs full of excitement and I, there was this girl there. She was a teenage girl on her pajamas. I mean, with the hospital staff and with a wheelchair, with her leg, with a cast and like with her arms crossed and looking at me like, yeah. what, what are you doing here? You know, cause I was so excited. Who's this and, lady? Yeah. And then I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm bringing dance to the hospital now and I'd love to share you what I do. Um, and if you like to participate or just like to listen to, to music. And she looked at me, she's like, I'm not gonna do anything, um, but you can show me what you got, basically, you know? <laughs> so I put this song that we do in Carnival in Brazil, and I was like showing the movements, and then I got some of the volunteers there to participate, just to kind of to create that uplifting vibe. And then she didn't participate, she, still, she remained with her arms crossed, and then she was like, well, I'm not going to dance, but can you play that song again? <laughs> I play the same song. Next thing I know, she, I looked at my peripheral vision, and she was like doing some moves, like, kind of shy, but started doing the movements. 
and that's the but that's experience with her and most of the time with all of their other kids you know like they are very skeptical at first especially because they are there and you know with the ivs and there's so much going on uh, that they are not just jumping in to participate however after i set the tone to reassure them that they have full self-agency that they can participate if they want to and if they do whichever level they want to because this is i'm there for them then they they embrace the experience and then just like they join in and they get excited and they choose their songs and i'm like they show me their moves it just really changes mm-hmm. um the vibe in the room it sounds like one of the elements that kids can have from dance is that freedom of choice when they're in a hospital and they don't have control over their medications or who, what the visiting hours are. They can even choose to stand in the corner if they want to and cross their arms. And that is a teeny little bit of power for, for, for a young kid. I'm so curious, Vanya, if you can put words to this of you know, when you remember when you were a 10 year old kid having gone through something really traumatic and even seeing the adults around you notice like that person in your school tried to reach out to you and have a conversation, but just being a little kid, you didn't quite have the words for it yet or the culture around us doesn't teach us how to talk about really difficult things. And I'm curious, you know, what is it that dance gives us that language sometimes fails to do? Oh, I have a different understanding, right? I learned that we store a lot of the trauma in our body. There are, I mean, there's a research from Dr. Bessel van der Kock from the, I was about to say movie, but the the book, The Body Keeps the Score, where he Mm -hmm. talks about the effect of trauma in our body. And I feel like by moving, dancing, plus when we incorporate music too, because music are like therapeutic by nature, I feel like speaking from my experience, it allows me to be in touch with parts of my emotions that I'm not able to verbalize. You know, like through movement, you can you can be small, you can be big, you can get strong, you can like be sassy, it's just so much. Like it's the vocabulary that allows me to have and looking back, I remember the way I was moving and, you know, the way I would change the choreography and the lyrics and do my own thing. And to this day, it's just like, it really allows me to tap into parts of myself that I am not able to through words, mm-hmm. you know? And also, it to me, I feel that back then and then now I feel like things really didn't change much when it comes to emotions and feelings is that uh, sometimes it's hard to hear myself talk, expressing the way I feel for real you know mm-hmm. and even as an know, adult as a, yeah even as an adult it's like mm-hmm. to say like oh i'm just feeling so depressed and feeling alone and tired mm-hmm. it's like i'm saying it now but when i do my self-checking in the morning i don't often say that because i don't want to believe that sometimes mm-hmm. and through movement i'm able to express all these feelings without being how can i say not confronted but it's still so hard to see it's hard to put in words (laughs) it is it's a more it's a freeing liberating and and not um not judging how it's i really don't i can't put on words and i know this is like 
people need words. <laughs> well, it's, it's very a, hard to say. Maybe you can help me. <laughs> well, one of the things that's making me think of is the fact that, you know, I remember doing a therapy course on shame once and the facilitator reminded us that shame is an emotion that doesn't have words you know it lives in the body because we learned that emotion back when we were little kids and we didn't have words and what you're describing to me sounds like the opposite of shame you know just like fully embodying yourself every nook and cranny even the parts that feel icky or private dance allows you to just be present and you don't even have to know what it is. You don't have to be academic about it. You can be a little kid. You can be a, an adult who's not yes. sure yet, but you don't, you don't have to be ready. You can just jump right in. Yes. Now that you said that it helped me connect what I was trying to say. Thank you. Um, I feel that by doing movements when I'm feeling, you know, my worst or my best, like it allows me to express myself without my inner critic tip, the tapping mm -hmm. in, you know, mm -hmm. because when I'm saying something it's like, oh, I'm feeling depressed. And my inner critic is like, why are you feeling depressed? Everything in your life is going well. There is no reason for that. You know, like psh, shake it off kind of mm -hmm. a thing. So that's like, when I am speaking, I feel like my inner critic hears that when I am moving, there is no shame. There's no judgment. It's my space. So perhaps, you know, but thank you. You helped me think about it. I love that. The inner critic has to just kind of sit and take it all just in. Just watch it. Yeah. yeah, just watch. <laughs> well, yeah. you you know, you know, when you mentioned um Bessel van der Kolk and the the body keeps the score, you you know what you're talking about. You're also tell me where you are in this process, but you're training to be a psychotherapist as well to combine some of this experience with dance. What what have you what have you learned approaching this work now through that um, formal training? You're saying anyone can dance, anyone can participate, and now you're combining it with a little bit more of the kind of traditional schooling, the way we're used to learning about talk therapy, right? What, what have you learned since you've combined those traditions? Yeah, so I, and that goes back to the reason why I started my program, right? Like I wanted just to use music and dance for the sake of music and dance because it's healing by nature and never want to become a therapist. That was my beginning. That uh -huh. was like my approach. It's like, you know, because they have a lot of therapists, that's great, but no, I, that's not what I want to do, which mm -hmm. it's still true to my heart in regards to Dancing Power as an organization, because we give opportunity to, you know, different artists to, to, be, to be part of what we do without having to be licensed therapists, because they're not going in depth, you know, into like really uh, providing therapy to the patients, although, like I said, the, the work is therapeutic. But what happened is I had several experiences throughout the past 14 years with different uh, kids that I work with in the hospitals that we serve that felt to me that could do more, you know, like I, that was enough what I was doing, but I felt called to, because sometimes, you know, like they wanted to share their process and everything. And all I did was listen, you know, and, and do my best to just like bring back the movement because I was not uh, qualified to provide therapy, but that planted the seed in me. It's like, man, you know, maybe, Maybe that's something I would do one day because I could combine everything. And then um, 
after that, that together with, I had this idea because, you know, the program has been going on for so long, but I felt like, you know, we could expand and scale so that we can serve more people. And what was missing for that was a research study. So I felt, okay, research study, I have to connect with some academics in order to do that. So I reached out to Stanford University, uh, to the Children's Hospital, and I spoke with Dr. Mary Leonard, who is the the chief medical officer for the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. And she's also the chief uh, pediatric something for the School of Medicine at Stanford. Like she's like someone out there. And I, I reached out directly to her and I said, look, this is what I do. This is what I believe that it needs to have in order to have uh, more respect, you know, in the field and also to be able to uh, scale and, and, and provide, improve the lives of more kids. So would you meet with me to talk about the research study? She said, yes, I met with her. So before meeting with her, I was like, I need to get informed here. I need to, you know, so I read the book. I read mm -hmm. The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. And then I met with her and the research study was approved. We haven't started yet, but, you know, funding for, for this kind of study is not on top of people's list, but mm -hmm. she gave me the support and the proof, which is wonderful. And, and then after that, I read the book and then experienced with the kids my own trajectory with my own therapist who has changed my life. She's the best therapist in the universe. Like absolutely changed my life. All together, I was like, well, I need to do this. It's, you know, that's another thing that's right there. I have to do because it's calling my name. I feel that I could really bring more, um, more to, to the kids that I serve. So then I went to CIIS, which is California Institute for Integrated Studies, and I did my master's degree there. I in counseling psychology with the emphasis in expressive arts therapy, hmm. uh, and I graduated in May. Oh, congratulations! So, thank you. That's thank a wonderful you. So update. Clients, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Although I didn't have the whole graduation because of thanks COVID, right? Yes. That's, you know. Yeah. So I graduated, and I have been since last year. Uh, working as an associate marriage family therapist uh, mm -hmm. for a rape crisis center that provides free mental health for sexual assault survivors. Wow. But um, yeah, so like the whole everything together, you know, like all the little things uh, really impacted the way I saw therapy and I saw the possibility of becoming a therapist myself. So. Well, here we are, all of us going through some hard times on top of hard times on top of hard times. You know, you have a lot of experience working with kids in the hospital and currently with survivors of sexual assault. And yet we're experiencing just kind of on a global scale, uh, the effects of traumatization and people are very isolated. And I'm wondering, you know, here everyone they're sheltering in place and perhaps even lonely while they're doing it. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how folks can use movement to feel connected or as part of their healing. What would you suggest to someone listening at home and who's just kind of um, new to this idea of using dance as a form of healing? What would you tell them? I have a lot of different things, but one of the things that I've noticed so before I share anything with anybody about suggestions, I like to try it myself, you know? So it's like, well, if this is gonna work for, if I'm suggesting, let's see how it feels. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes some of the different interventions are like, eh, maybe not this one. So things I've tried that I feel that um, 
you know, so far has been like really a positive. Um, making the playlist, making different playlists, I think that uh, to match with whichever mood you want to be in, I think that's a good thing because then you you selectively you hand picking like the songs that mean something to you, right? Mm -hmm. So making different playlists of the, the, your mood. Um, I have a ritual which is like I wake up every day with like last year was with Nina Simone feeling good. Mm. That's not feeling good. Mm. That was my alarm thing on my phone. And just doing that, just like, it's already good. This year I changed to, uh, not this year, after my birthdays when I usually change things, I changed to Bill Weathers, Bill Weathers uh, Lovely Day. So like, mm. just to start the day already with something like this. Uh, so making your playlist, then I usually feel like, you know, before you start the day, if you have a chance, I am really big in meditation. I, I do like really passionate meditation. Um, so having a chance to just be in touch with your body and do a, your self check-in, you know. I do my meditation and I usually play some songs that, you know, uh, there's a song called Holy by Jamila Woods. It's a wonderful song that talks about self-love. And I play that song. I do my tarot thing that I like just for my own interpretation, you know. Mm -hmm. And then with my stretch in the morning, I play songs that, again, speaks to me. Uh, and besides that, one of the things that, um, and I usually, like, after the, the stretching and everything, I do at least three songs nonstop just dancing, just to get my body going, especially because we are, like, confined to our homes and, it's so easy to be lonely and depressed. And, you know, we know that movement can help in so many, uh, in so many levels, physically, you know, it produces the endorphin, it helps, helps boost you already. So I do a little dance part with myself here. And then throughout the day, I actually put on my phone an alarm, like every four hours to move, to do, mm. to like pick whatever dance and then do it. And, you know, it's really helpful. Like I have a, a long repertoire of different dance choreography and moves or free dancing, but if people don't have access to their own experience with dance, you know, put, get a YouTube and get some song that you like, you know, and there, there's so much to get in YouTube with choreography. You can just follow along, you know, uh, also inviting your friends, you know, like maybe connecting with friends and doing a Zoom thing or going to the park. Um, I also feel that, this is more than ever um last friday today's what monday today's mm -hmm. monday so mm -hmm. last friday i led a, a workshop uh, for the british medical journal they have a conference every year it's an international conference for quality in healthcare and the theme i chose was self-love and self-care you know and that's one of the things that i learned there like a lot of us tend to feel self um feel self-conscious about taking that time to, to do self-care and self-love, you know, mm -hmm. but now more than matter, like we have to do those kind of things. It's just so important because uh, like Audre Lorde said, uh, and I love this quote, I, I learned about this quote from the book I read that I definitely recommend called Pleasure Activism mm -hmm. from Adrian Mary Brown. So one of the quotes from the book which is credit to other Lord is caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. Mm -hmm. So I keep trying to, you know, to share with everybody that's just so important to take that time 
to mm-hmm. dance, to listen to music, to do yoga, whatever, like to go outside for a walk, right? Like just to be in touch with your body. I think that's mm-hmm. that's so important now more than ever. Mm-hmm. We great. have the power to do what we feel is best for us. And no one but us know how to take care of ourselves, right? Like better. Like, so anyway. Anya, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing all those suggestions about, I think as soon as we hang up the phone, I'm going to go ahead and adjust my alarm settings and put on some music that I would like to wake up to. And I'm inspired by hearing your personal story. And I'm sure a lot of folks are as well to know that you can get through difficult times and and be connected to people through dance. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, you're welcome. Well, there is one thing I didn't share and I wanted to share. Is that okay to share now? Yes, please. Yes, yes. So when I read the book last year called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, which is an excellent book for Mm -hmm. women, especially, Mm -hmm. um, I learned about one activity to do to increase your Mm self-love that I started doing last year uh i do it every day and this year i was telling my friend sarah the other day is like the effect that it had on me is tremendous so the activity is every morning you get up and you go to your mirror and you like you know you choose how many minutes you want like one minute or two or five let's say one minute and you put a timer on and during that minute you look at yourself in the mirror with clothes or without clothes whichever way you want like without clothes better because you can see everything Mm-hmm. and say all the positive wonderful qualities that you have mm-hmm. all everything mm-hmm. and i know that the self the inner critic can you know often come in and be like what are you talking about that you know but for that minute alone like you have 23 hours 59 minutes of the day <laughs> to allow the self-critic to come in when you want to but during that minute self-criticism is not welcome and say all the positive, beautiful things about yourself from inside and out. Hmm. And then every day, keep that as a practice. Uh, Sometimes people, they like, well, maybe I'll just do one body part at a time because I'm not able to say, you know, to Mm -hmm. acknowledge all my beauty and glory. (laughs) But um, I did that for the whole year. And I was telling Sarah the other day, it's like, nowadays I come to the mirror and I'm like, oh my God, you look so beautiful. <laughs> it really changed. It changed yes. the way we yes. perceive ourselves. And it's so important to to like really cultivate that muscle of self-love. So that's one thing I wanted to share because it worked for me. Like I said, I test things before I share. It worked mm-hmm. for me so well. And I, I just hope mm-hmm. that people can get in touch with their self-love, love- you know, more. I love that. Well, you've given us many examples of how people can counter condition themselves against that burnout culture. So as soon as folks press pause on this podcast, I want them to go into their routines and rituals and find one that will feel just as good and and be in that space and embody that space. Vanya, thank you so much for joining us today. This was wonderful. Like it totally pumped me up. It's going to get my day better right now. Your energy too. Thank you for having me, me and for sharing your wisdom and for having this podcast. You know, I feel that I was listening to another episode the other day and it's just it's so wonderful to, you know, feel like we're not alone and people go through similar things and wise people out there sharing their experiences. It just, it just feels, mm-hmm. it feels like a really good, um, companion especially Aww. for us leave women leaving alone you know yes. it's, it's really wonderful so yes. i'm very grateful that you're doing this oh thank you for me. saying that i appreciate it well have a great day 
Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. for Real Life also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Real Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs. 